This morning we're going to look at 2 Samuel 22. As I mentioned last week, these last few chapters are often viewed as a kind of appendix to 2 Samuel. Not that they're unimportant, they're, they're very important, but that they, they sort of form an ending piece, a wrap-up as it were. And that is the case here again this morning as we look at this text. It is a very long text, 51 verses, so rather than read it all at the outset, I'm going to highlight and read some verses as we go through and look at it. It is a song of deliverance that David gives. It's a song of deliverance that is actually also a psalm. With very few changes, you will find this in another part of your Bible. If you turn to Psalm 18, you'll see the language is almost exactly the same. It's about 95% identical. And that is, as the people of God took this song of David and brought it to themselves to be in the public worship of the true and living God. And as we look at this text, I want to remind you that the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Let's pray that the Lord would open our eyes that we might see Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would teach us your will from this text. That you would teach us to love you. Teach us to praise you. That you would point our eyes toward our Savior. That in hearing from David, we would hear from David's greater son. Even our Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Well, this is a song of deliverance that has two voices woven within it. It's not, strictly speaking, a duet, for those of you that are musically inclined. But it is a combination of two voices that we can hear from the text. And we have seen throughout the books of Samuel that David presents two pictures for us. On the one hand, David is an example to us as believers. He is a picture of what it means to believe, to repent, and to receive the Lord's promises. But he is also a picture of his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we have in this song, this psalm. While we hear the voice of David praising the Lord for what he has done, listen also for the voice of Jesus, who is greater than David. We're going to try to look at three things this morning from the text. Alliteration to help you to remember them. We're going to look at the deliverer, and then we'll look at the delight. And then thirdly, we will look at the dominion. And in each instance, we're going to look at what David says about each of these three points as they apply to himself and his kingdom. And then we're going to turn and see how they apply to the Lord Jesus Christ and what he says about himself and his kingdom. So let's begin then by looking at the deliverer. We begin with praise for the Lord. Now, Verse 1 tells us that David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies 
and from the hand of Saul. And there is much debate now as to when David wrote this. You will recall that these last few chapters are not strictly speaking chronological with 2 Samuel. They are wrap-up material. And so as often is the case, if you put 100 commentators in a room, you get at least 60 or 70 opinions. And so there is much debate about when David wrote this. Some think that this has to be something he wrote near the very end of his life. Because after all, it says, the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies. And so there couldn't be enemies still waiting out there. Others say, no, 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 no. This must have been done when David was first established as the anointed king. And when God made his covenant promises to David in 2 Samuel 7. Because how could David speak, as he does in verse 21, of his righteousness and of his obedience to God's law after his sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah. Others say, well, no, it's probably when he first defeated Saul, because that's the emphasis here on verse 1. And the short answer is, we don't know, and it's not essential for us to know. Do you know how I know that? Because if it was essential, God would have told us. He specifically left that vague for us so that we don't pinpoint this down to a specific struggle that David has. It's meant to encapsulate his entire life. Well, this is David's personal song of praise, but it was incorporated, as I've said, into the public worship of Israel. It is Psalm 18. And in this psalm, this song of praise... David begins by describing God in verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. Now the very first thing I want you to notice, hopefully you did from my emphasis in reading it, is all of the first person pronouns here. This is not just some God. This is not just the Creator. This is David's God. Over and over again, he says, this is my God. So he starts by trying to describe who God is, and the question we might have is, how can we do that? How can we describe God? After all, God is infinite in all of His attributes. Perfect in all his ways. And we don't even understand what the concept of infinite is. Sure, there are math teachers among us that will tell us how we could put it in an equation, but we can't wrap our finite minds around something that has no beginning and no end. It's beyond us. And and that describes God. God is beyond us. We can understand God after a fashion by analogy. We understand that he's holy because we understand Holiness is a concept, but we don't understand how holy God is. Because He's perfect and eternal and infinite in all of His holiness. And so with all of His attributes. And so David gives us a way to begin to describe God. And he does it by piling up words of praise. One aspect of God is not enough here. Do you see? He says, He is my rock, fortress, deliverer, refuge, shield, horn of salvation, stronghold, savior. It's as if 
David can't get the words out fast enough. He loses breath because he wants to make sure that he's piling them up as high as he can in an attempt to somehow give appropriate praise to God. Well, David says that God is his rock. And this is something that we see throughout the scripture. God is described as a rock. And what this means is, is that God is, as David says, his fortress, his shelter. He is a strong tower from the storms of life. David is reminding us that life is not peaceful, that life is not easy. And if you recall half of what David has gone through in his life, you will agree with him. And yet God is there for him. He protects him. He's his shelter. His strong tower. And more than that, God is a refuge. He is a place where we can go. He protects us not only from our enemies, but He gives us peace and calm. If God being our fortress is kind of like God being the best panic room you could ever invent. A place where when your enemies attack, you can go and hide from them and be protected. Then God as our refuge is a place where we can go and relax and be at peace. You know what that's like, don't you? Especially moms of young kids. There's a place in your house, or maybe it's your car, or maybe it's the garage. It's a place where you go to be free for a moment from the constant knocking of your children of, Mom, Mom, I need your help. Mom, Mom, you got to help me with this here. Mom, quick, quick. You just want to be at peace. You want to have a moment's rest. But God's much more than that. He is our eternal rest. He is not just our protector. He is our place of peace and quiet and surety. He's also a sure foundation. That's what a rock is. You remember Jesus' parable where he said there was a man who built a house on sand. And when the storms came, the house was washed away. Everything was lost, but then there was a man who built his house on the solid rock. And even when the fierce storms came, it held up because the foundation was steady. That is God for us. He is our foundation. In the midst of all of our troubles, all of our struggles, all of our strife, God is firm. He never wavers. He never buckles. He holds us up. David also says that the Lord is my shield. And here he draws on his ancestors' revelation. Abraham was told by God in Genesis 15 that God would be his shield, his protector. Now we don't really understand, I think, in our day how important a shield was. Because we live in a day of... Uh, bombers and tanks and machine guns, not of swords and spears. But when you were on the battlefield, literally the only thing that kept death away from you was your shield. It was there to take the force and the violence of all of the darts of the enemy who would come after you to kill you. And that's what God is for us. He protects us from the darts of the enemy, of the evil one who seeks to destroy our soul. He protects us and we can know that we are safe because He, our shield, is before us. If you think about your life and all of the challenges you have had and all of the sorrow that has come into your life, can you imagine what it would be like if you did not have God as your shield? 
if the darts of the enemy always hit their mark. If you never had peace, if you were always under attack, you could not survive. But God is our shield. God is also one, David says, who is worthy to be praised. David tells us that God is worthy to be praised for who he is and what he has done. And David calls upon God to save him. Because calling upon God is to be saved. We should never doubt the power of God. When we call upon him, we are saved. So let me ask you, how much time do you spend praising the Lord? Prayer is one thing, and we should and can rightly pray prayers of petition for our needs. But do we pray prayers of praise for who God is? Do you often think about how great God is? I will tell you, if you don't, if your prayers are too heavy on the petition side, you need to practice praise. Because when you praise God for who He is and what He has done, you become even more sure that He will answer your prayers in a mighty way. Because you know He is a God of might and power and surety and love. Well, David then moves from praising God to describing the trouble that he has been rescued from in verses 5-7. through seven. And he does this intentionally because he wants us to see how great God is. He tells us how great the trouble was he was in and the Lord had delivered him. Look with me at verse 5. For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. Look at that language. Waves of death. Torrents of destruction. This is not a sun shower. This is not even a torrential downpour. This is a Category 5 hurricane. Death surrounds David. It comes upon him wave after wave. It entangles him. It seems like there's no escape ever. These are not small things. It's not as if David had easy problems. You know, we sometimes complain about things that are small. We even have a, a catchphrase for it. You know, we talk about first world problems. Oh, woe is me. My phone takes so long to charge. Oh, I got my latte this morning and it was too cold. Oh, my car does not have a remote starter. And now I'm cold when I sit in my car. Now, these are things that we might find inconvenient. We might find unpleasant. But I dare say the vast majority of the world wished they had those problems. The problems that David is describing are big problems. And you see, we have those too, don't we? We have financial problems. We have relationship problems. We have medical problems. And when we are faced with a dire report from a doctor or wondering which bill we should pay this week or wondering how our children are going to work out their lives, that is when we go to the Lord. This should help you 
in your relationship with God. To know that God delivers from the worst of the worst. We know this from the story of David's life. He was betrayed. He was one step from death. He was never at peace. And he tells us that the Lord delivered him. He called upon God in his distress, and God heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. And then, David describes this rescue in a poetic way between verses 8 and 16. He tells us how God delivered him, how he rescued him. And even as we read it, we are a bit confused. The earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked. Smoke went up from his nostrils, devouring fire from his mouth. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He made darkness around him his canopy. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed earth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and he sent out arrows and scattered them. The channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare. You see this over and over again. Now when we read this, we say, when did this happen to David? Did the earth rock? Did God swoop down and breathe fire on Saul? Did thunder and arrows come out of heaven against Absalom? Did the sea pour out and the earth open up to save David? One of the interesting things about David's life is there is no spectacular miracle in his life. David's life in that way is a lot more like ours than Moses's is, or Joshua's is, or Elijah's is. There weren't miracles by which David was saved. As Saul is on his heels, but one hill away, and we read this account, and we are fearful that David is going to be captured, that Saul is going to be victorious, that the end is here, then God sends a messenger. Hold off. The Philistines are attacking. We need to leave now. When David is betrayed by his son Absalom, who has more power, and David is at a loss, he is in crisis, he is running for his life, and again we fear that all is at a loss and an end. God confounds the counsel of Ahithophel. And he puts Hushai in just the right place at just the right time to bring victory to David. What David is doing here is borrowing from the language of Exodus. In a way, he's explaining to us how God is behind all of those coincidences. He wants you to see, to feel in technicolor the deliverance of God. He doesn't want you to say, well, you know, that was good luck that the Philistines just happened to attack at that time. No. That was God. He doesn't want you to say, well, that sure was intelligent of David to tell Hushai to stay behind and let Absalom listen to him. No. That was God at work. Just as when the mountains trembled, just as when the fire came forth, God rescued his servant. Do you see God in your life? Do you give Him the praise for how He has rescued you? If you know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, 
here this morning, then you have the best evidence you could have that God has rescued you. He's rescued you from sin and death by the work of His Son. Well, that's David's praise for God. And we then see in the same vein, David's greater son's praise. Because Jesus also delighted in the Father. This is a picture of Jesus, our King. Over and over again, we can hear Him in the Gospels. I thank you, Father, that you have hidden this from the wise and revealed it to babes in Luke 10. Father, glorify your name with the glory that you had in the beginning. John chapter 12. And of course, with Jesus, we can see his great distress as well as David's. No one experienced distress like Jesus did. Now, this seems so counterintuitive to us because Jesus is powerful. He is able. He is God himself. And yet, for our sakes... He took on distress. His life was one of poverty and want. You remember? He had no home, no place where he could lay his head. You remember the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying that the Father would allow the cup to pass so that he would not have to drink it to its dregs. You remember Jesus on the cross crying out, My God, my God! Why have you forsaken me? All of that distress came upon our Lord. And yet, there was victory. The victory of the cross. The Father heard His cries and He gave Jesus the victory. Hebrews 5 tells us that in the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard. The Father heard Jesus. Jesus was delivered from death. And He has won the victory. And in that, the symbol of shame and death, the cross, has become a symbol of life and glory. Some of you here this morning may be wearing a cross around your neck. Could you imagine going out with a piece of jewelry of an electric chair or a hangman's noose or a guillotine? Seems foolish, doesn't it? But do you see what Jesus has done in his victory? He has taken the symbol of shame, defeat, and crime, the cross, and turned it into a symbol of victory and power and dominion. Jesus is victorious. Do you see the connection between Jesus' victory and your hope today? Jesus praises the Father because you have been redeemed. Jesus glories in your salvation. How can you not join Him in that praise? The second thing that we see is the delight David's delight in his God and his description of God delighting in him. We see this in verses 21 and following. David moves on to describe the relationship of living in the Lord. 
And the language here makes us a bit uncomfortable. Look at verse 21. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, He rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. Look at verse 23. For all His rules were before me, and from His statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before Him. I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in His sight. We read that and we're uncomfortable. How does that fit in with grace? That sounds a lot like works and merit. And even more so, if this is written at the end of David's life, how could David say it then? Has he forgotten about Bathsheba? Has he forgotten about Uriah? Has he forgotten about how he parented his sons, Amnon and Absalom? Blameless? Righteous? What does this mean? We need to start by looking back at verse 20. There David says that God rescued me because he delighted in me. God's blessing of David starts with God's own sovereign choice. Why did the Lord delight in David? We don't know. When Samuel came to Jesse's house to find Saul's replacement to anoint the new king of Israel. Jesse was there with all his sons. They didn't even have David there. He was out in the fields. He was so unimportant. Surely, David was not to be the king. (coughs) And yet, they had to bring him in from the fields. And God reminded Samuel and Jesse and his family that he sees not with the eyes of men, but that God sees truly according to his own decree. 1 Samuel 16 is kind of David's Ephesians 1. You know Ephesians 1 that tells you that if you are in Christ, you were chosen by God before the foundation of the earth. You see, God delighted in David not because of who David was or what he did, but because God chose to delight in David. And so that is true for all who are in Christ. We have to understand that any ability that we have to obey the Lord, to please the Lord, starts with His work in us, not with our own. Well, David then describes his faithfulness in following the Lord in these verses. He's telling about his overall faithfulness to God and His will. This is not a claim that he's perfect. Actually, the word blameless in verse 24 doesn't mean sinless or perfect. It rather means wholeheartedness or completeness, integrity. David is not talking about why God rescued him as if he deserved it. He's giving us a principle to apply. The direction of the life of a believer should be to follow God. And that is where you find blessing. Why would we expect blessing when we reject God and His ways? Isn't that foolish? Have you ever seen someone be out in public, maybe they're at a hotel or at a store, and they are ranting and raving at someone who works there about how horrible everything is? And then it turns out that that happens to be the manager. 
who makes the decision about whether or not they get a favor or not. Why would we expect the manager to say, well, you know, you've insulted me, you don't care about me, you think I'm worthless, my company's worthless, sure, I'll go out of my way to help you. Why would we expect God to allow us to treat him that way and to put us in the path of blessing? David says that with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. Now this word for merciful, you have seen before. We've seen it several times. I hope that at least several of you can say it in Hebrew. It is the word chesed. It's that word for covenant love, steadfast love, mercy, tender mercies. And what David is saying is, with those who show covenant love, you show yourself covenantally loving. You have placed your love on your people and they are in covenant with you and they respond to that love. It does matter how you live. Not because we can earn God's love, but because it's the evidence that we are God's. Perhaps you've heard the old tale that if someone were to charge you in a court of law with being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? You see, the way we live <coughs> is evidence of our relationship with God. Saul was constantly showing that he was not God's. But David was showing he was. Of course, this applies to the Lord Jesus Christ, also the faithfulness of David's greater son. Jesus was the chosen one. He was chosen by God to be the redeemer of all God's people. This was, was predicted in the prophets, especially in the prophet Isaiah. And then you remember in Luke chapter 9, a voice comes out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Hear him. And Jesus' obedience, unlike David's, unlike yours, unlike mine, was perfect. Jesus always followed the Lord and His will. As a matter of fact, Jesus said it was His food to do the Father's will. But Jesus' obedience was greater than David's. Jesus' obedience was not just evidence, it earned merit before the Lord. Jesus was not born a sinner. He never sinned. He always kept God's law in thought, word, and deed. And His perfect obedience makes Him greater. It's why He can be the Savior. In every way that you have sinned, Jesus did not. Think about that. Jesus always obeyed. And when you believe in Jesus, all of that is put to your account. It's not just that your sins are placed on Jesus. His righteousness is placed on you. You can be sure of your salvation because of what Jesus has done. The founder of Princeton Theological Seminary, J. Gresham Machen, on his deathbed, said, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. There's no hope without it. 
What he's saying is, is that you can stand before a holy God because you will be wrapped in the righteous clothes of the Savior. And Jesus' obedience is such that the Lord's blessing overflows to us. By faith, we are united to Jesus. We are blessed with the blessings that Jesus earned. What Jesus earned, we enjoy. Those spiritual blessings in the heavenlies that are preserved for us, unblemished, Peter says. Well, there's a third thing. And that is the dominion. As we think about David's kingdom. David tells us about his kingdom in verses 32 and following. He first tells us that God's power establishes his kingdom. It's established by God. Look at the language here in verse 32 and following. It is again more praise for God. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He has made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation. Your gentleness made me great. You gave me a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. Over and over again, what David is saying is, who is like God? Look at God because look at what he has done, what he has made. How he has trained, how he has given, how he has equipped. All of what David has accomplished, and it's a great deal, is credited to the Lord. This is also a good test for you. Do you give God the glory? Is he your testimony to others? I don't mean when something unforeseen good happens to you. I mean when you pursue something and you train for it and you work hard for it and you finish and you complete it and all of your work is done, do you give God the praise instead of yourself? I'm glad when I see someone publicly credit God for their victory. Oftentimes where we see this is in the realm of sports. The reporters will be asking some player how he was possibly able to accomplish what he did. And they'll maybe want to learn about his training techniques or what he was thinking about or how he knew the game plan. And the response is to praise God for who he is, for giving me that ability for my salvation. I give all the praise to Jesus Christ. That is not kitchen. That is giving God the glory. But the real test is not whether I enjoy seeing that, but whether I do that. That's the difference. Well, God expands David's kingdom. He not only founds it with his power, he expands it. David describes how the victory that God has given him goes international in verses 41 to 43. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. Those who hated me, I destroyed them. They looked. But there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed and stamped them down. Verse 45, foreigners came cringing to me. Verse 44, you kept me as the head of the nations. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling over and over again. 
David is describing the power of the kingdom and the expansion of the kingdom all around him. First, he says, Lord, you've delivered me from strife. From that internal strife in Israel. And second, you made me the head of the nations. And third, the nations themselves saw the power of the kingdom. This is the story of David. He defeated the Philistines, the Ammonites, and all of the nations around him. God did not give David a small enclave. No, he grew and expanded David's kingdom. We see that in the days of Solomon. And we see that even here. In our midst, look around you. Do you see the nations around you? You should. Because God has taken his kingdom to the ends of the earth. And he has brought the ends of the earth even here to us in Katy. I don't have the time to list the nations that are represented in our congregation. This is what God does, how He expands the kingdom before us. And finally, God's promise ensures the kingdom. Look at verse 51. Great salvation He brings to His king and shows steadfast love to His anointed, to David and his offspring forever. David ends with a great promise of God to show steadfast love. There's that word again. Chesed. Covenant love, faithfulness. David's probably thinking about 2 Samuel 7 here. That God made a promise, and his character is such that he won't break his promise, and his power is such that he will bring it about. You know, I don't know if you have been this past few weeks doing Bible reading to read through the Bible in a year. If you're not, I want to encourage you to do that. If you haven't started, then just pick up right where the reading plan is now, in the middle of Genesis. Don't worry about being three weeks behind. Just start. Because you see, one of the greatest blessings of daily Bible reading is to hear God's promises over and over and over again. Don't deny yourself that blessing. Know that God is faithful and true. God established and expanded David's kingdom, and how much even more David's greater son's kingdom. The kingdom of God is not established by any human effort, just like David's kingdom. All of this applies to Jesus' dominion only in a greater sense. The kingdom of God is not established by our efforts, and we need to hear this. Otherwise, we are quick to claim credit for what's going on. Or else we get discouraged thinking we're not up for the task and we can't accomplish it. Beloved, God does not need your resources. He does not need your skill. He does not need your work. He wants you to be faithful and to see His work and His power. Even our most active efforts are in God's power. And 
The kingdom of Jesus Christ expands to all the peoples. David spoke of the kingdom spreading to the nations around him. But Jesus' kingdom spreads in a way that David could never have imagined. Jesus' kingdom has gone to places and to peoples that David did not even know existed. To China. To Africa. To Brazil. To America. The promise we have from God's word is that every nation, tribe, and tongue will be gathered into the kingdom. And that is what should drive us to serve others who are not like us. We're not to be driven by guilt or by shame. No, but by hope and promise. Jesus' kingdom is much bigger than us. We need to act on that truth. And of course, just as David had God's covenant promise that his kingdom would endure, so we have the Lord's promise that Jesus' kingdom can never be defeated. Salvation is founded on God's covenant love. He did not need to save anyone, let alone you and me. But having given that promise... We know that he will save to the uttermost those who draw near to him in Christ. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table this morning, do you have a song in your heart? Does David's song stick in your brain? Will you find yourself later humming praise for your Lord and his rescue of you? throughout the rest of your life? Do you delight to do His will, following your Savior? David gave us a song to sing. A song that finds its truest expression in Jesus. There is no one like Jesus. Only Jesus saves. Only Jesus rescues. Only Jesus establishes His kingdom and welcome sinners like you and me into it. Praise be to the Lord our God. Amen. Let's pray.